720 WGN John Landegger at 836. Yeah, obviously that's uh, Siskel and Ebert and with us on the phone to talk about a, what I think is going to be a, a tremendous book, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. It comes out uh, on the 24th and uh, Matt Singer is with us. Good evening, Matt. Welcome to WGN. Thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, you are, what's the word I saw in this uh, article? A obsessive Siskel and Ebert fan. Could you expound on that? Well, uh, yes. I, I mean, I would I would certainly describe myself, and apparently if it was in an article, I definitely did describe myself. <laughs> um, I, I grew up uh, yeah. loving Siskel and Ebert. You know, yeah. I'm in my 40s now, but I grew up uh, watching the show. Uh, obsessively, uh, and you know, this was a show that was not always easy to watch, too. You really had to work for it. Uh, it was a syndicated show, and when I was growing up in suburban New Jersey, wow, it wasn't always on. It wasn't always on in prime time. No, so right. I would, have, I would have to seek it out, find it. Some weeks you would turn on when you thought it was on, and it would have mysteriously changed what time they were airing it because it's syndicated mm-hmm. and it would move all over the dial. But uh, I loved the show, and I followed it wherever it went, including till late at night. I used to tell my parents I was going to sleep and lay in bed with the lights off, wait until they went to sleep so I wouldn't get in trouble because it was, up, it was on after my bedtime. This is how young I was uh, and how late the show was on. And then uh, at, like, midnight, I would hope my parents were asleep, and I would turn on the TV in my room, this tiny little tube television, and at the lowest possible volume, so that if Gene and Roger started yelling, it uh, wouldn't uh, disturb my parents, yeah. wouldn't alert them to this illicit activity, and I would watch the show. I had no idea that you're as young as you are. What was it about, my bad, what was it about Siskel and Ebert that as a really young person attracted you? That that is in a way a question that I was trying to solve by writing the book because you know, I don't even know. Uh, because to tell you the truth, I was not the world's biggest movie fan at that right. age. Sure, right, right. I liked I liked movies. I went to the movies, but it wasn't like I was uh, watching Godard films and Fellini <laughs> films and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, I was watching the stuff that was playing at the multiplex. But something about this show really uh, caught my eye, and I. Honestly, I think it was that even at that age, look, I knew I was not going to be the uh, the star football player, the cool kid. Uh, and Gene and Roger, as great as they were as film critics, you know, they weren't glamorous, handsome stars. What appealed to me about them, I think, was that they they seemed like regular guys who talked about movies on television. And I thought, this is the coolest thing. Uh, that these guys are just, look at them. They're hanging out on TV in a movie theater talking about the movies. It seemed to me like the greatest job in the world, and it still kind of seems that way. To be yeah, honest. I agree with you. You know, the stories around here, of course, many of us who were here at the very beginning, uh, Ebert over at the Sun-Times, Siskel at the Trib, and somebody getting the idea of putting them together over at Channel 11. And I read a portion of your a book in the Chicago Magazine, and I never realized the amount of rehearsals that went into their early days. That was that surprised me. 
Yeah, uh, you know, WTTW really prided themselves on the quality of their production. And I think that extended to a lot of rehearsal. Yeah, expecting yeah. that the, the talent would, you know, get it right, you know. And so in the early days of the show, they would really rehearse every little detail. And if somebody stumbled uh, on a line or they flubbed something or stammered, but do it again, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, Siskel and Ebert hated that. They did not really perform well under those conditions. They were not brained uh, TV journalists. You know, they were from the newspapers, as you said. Yeah. And they didn't really like that way of working. And, and one day it kind of came to a head, and they were allowed to basically try doing it the opposite way. Instead of all the rehearsal, no rehearsal. Let's try to do this in one take off the cuff. We don't know what each other is going to say, and we're going to react to each other naturally. And lo and behold, that was kind of the secret sauce, was getting these guys to essentially take their off-screen relationship, which was always combative and competitive, <laughs> and put that on screen. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Once they figured that out, that was it. It was off to the races. Yeah. It's hard for me to believe that they would think that they could script those two, because letting them go run free was why, in my opinion, anyway, the show became as big as it was because they had this, whatever you want to call it, kind of chemistry on the air, plus the knowledge of the, the films they were talking about. And it was a very unique pairing. But as you say, um, and it's well documented, certainly in the beginning, they really did not like each other, right? Oh, no, they no. did not. No, no. Really, no. It really, I mean, what it looked like on the show, especially in the beginning, was what it was, which was this, you know, they, uh, you know, uh, I believe Ebert was started as the film critic at the Sun-Times in 67. This yeah. starts two years later. And between 1969 and 1975, when the show starts, they're both working as the film critics for their papers, and they see each other a lot at screenings, at theaters, and they don't speak. They barely exchange a word. You know, <laughs> Ebert would say that they would stand next to each other in the lobby of the theater and, like, glare at each other and not say a word. That's so true. Because they because they were so obsessed with beating one another. Oh, uh, and that, yeah, I know. That was six, six years of that. And so that was what it was like when they started. Now, over time, that did, they softened. They grew to admire and love and maybe even like each other a little bit. But that competitive spirit never fully left, and it always remained at the core of their relationship and also of the show and why the show was so much fun to watch. Yeah, uh, having chemistry between two very intelligent people talking about something that they're passionate about um, in a format that no one had ever seen before uh, was really fantastic. And just for the small part that I read about from that read uh, the portion of your book that's in the um, current issue of Chicago Magazine, I mean, some of the things you get into, I never even thought about um, the film clips that they showed on the their review show the process that they went through trying to get what they wanted tell, can you tell that story sure absolutely yeah in the early days of the show we're talking the mid to late 1970s you know nowadays if you want to look up a, a trailer or see clips from a movie just go on youtube go on your computer your phone it's very right. easy in yeah. those days, it was it was not, and um, the the studios, the Hollywood studios, they didn't really even make uh, press kits to send around to journalists. Really, that was pretty rare. And so, to illustrate their reviews, 
they made their own clips, which if you mm. ask any film critic or journalist nowadays, it's absolutely mind-boggling that they were allowed to do this because this... no studio today would ever allow it. They, you would get in so much trouble. You mean they, they were actually literally... they were actually given the film to cut up themselves? They took the film. They would take the film print from Man. the press screenings from a theater if it was showing like already showing in a theater. They would yeah. borrow the actual film print, take it, take just the part. They would you know because these are huge cans of film. It, it, yes. you know, and film prints are in reels. They would take cans of the film, just the parts they wanted, schlep them to a dubbing place, a transfer house. Copy yeah. just the scenes they wanted and bring it all back. And do Amazing. that every single week, multiple times. John Landecker, uh, WGN, talking to Matt Singer, author of Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed the World. And I think that's a perfect example of their arc of fame, if you will, from rehearsals at Channel 11 Studios to walking on The Tonight Show with uh, Johnny Carson. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, and they they said that when they were finally on with uh, Johnny Carson, which was you know a fair number of years into doing yeah, the show, and right. they had been on Letterman a bunch, and maybe been on the Tonight Show with guest hosts at first. But when they you know when they made it on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, that was like that was the moment they realized that they had really uh, made it. And I believe they also said that uh, what a, perhaps the only time in their entire relationship they ever hugged. Was when they were backstage at the Tonight Show at Carson because they were kind of a little overwhelmed by the feeling that they did not belong in that environment. But there they were. You know, I didn't know Gene very well. I mean, we were acquainted. But over the years, I did become friends with Roger. And I have to tell you, I thought, thought he was maybe one of the most intelligent people I'd ever met in my life. And I was a little intimidated, to be honest with you, to be in a conversation with him because... He was just that smart. And I don't mean just about movies. I just mean, you know, in general. And I'm sure Gene was, too. It's mm-hmm. just that I didn't get to know him that well, that's all. Um, mm-hmm. But, man, Roger was really something else. And both of them, so you know, so into the, into the film criticism. And I don't believe either of them went, started their careers heading in that direction, did they? No, certainly not. I mean, neither yeah. one went to film school or right. film academically. I mean, uh, in their day, that that was pretty unusual if they had. I mean, there really weren't a lot of places to, to study film in college in, in those days. But no, they, you know, they both had sort of different ambitions when they were very young. I mean, Roger was always interested in, in writing and he was working at his local newspaper in Urbana when he was still in high school. Um, and then he, you know, moved to Chicago. He was working on his PhD and he got a job at the Sun Times initially just kind of to pay the bills while he was getting his PhD. Um, and he was literally handed the job of film critic when the old mm-hmm. film critic retired. Wow. He was not really looking for that job. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and Siskel, uh, kind of, uh, a similar, he kind of came to journalism a little later in his life. He thought for a while he might be a lawyer. Um, but he kind of fell in love with journalism and got a job at the Tribune and was working like in the neighborhood news section. And in that case, their critic didn't retire, but was leaving for like a fellowship at Harvard. And um, Gene decided to kind of uh, throw his hat in the ring, essentially. He wrote a letter to the editor saying, you should give me the job <laughs> instead of your original plan, which was, I guess, to 
have whoever was around just kind of fill in, you know, piecemeal. Yeah. And uh, the editor said, okay, you got the job. And that was it. You, you know, they were both off and running. The uh, book is called Opposable Thumbs. And then how Siskel and Ebert changed movies forever. So how did they change movies forever? Well, we don't have too many, too much time, I would assume. It would take a whole book, perhaps, to explain Maybe. how they did it. But in just a, a minute or two, okay. I, mean, I, think, I, really do, I really do think their influence on the world of movies, on movie criticism, pop culture in general is really mm-hmm. enormous in terms of, you know, the folks like me who watched the show and were inspired to become the next generation, both of film critics, but also of filmmakers. There are filmmakers right. who talk about watching the show as, as young people, being inspired and discovering movies that way. There's the filmmakers that they championed when they were on the show. People, who, right. you know, and I spoke to some of them for their for the book. People who say, Siskel and Ebert gave me a career. I would not yeah. have had a career if not for their positive reviews. And then there's the things that they did when they were on the show that brought issues uh, to, to people's attention, their fans and viewers' attention. Things like, uh, you know, the uh, studios wanted to colorize black and white movies, and they hated that idea. And <laughs> no, so I can imagine. Whole, they, they dedicated whole episodes to convincing people that this was a bad idea, and they kind of yeah. helped sway popular opinion about it. So those are just like a handful of quick right. ways, but, I mean, there's many other ways that, you know, there's really a, a before and after with Cisco and Ebert in terms of the movie world and the, the world of film criticism, for sure. The uh, book is Opposable Thumbs, How Cisco and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. It comes out October 24th. And Matt will be in conversation with uh, the Tribune's Michael Phillips on November 28th at the Gene Siskel Film Center, 164 North State Street, which brings me to a story. Uh, you know, everybody knew that how that they had this, I don't know, opposing, they clashed, they argued over everything. And as you, as you write, um, it mellowed a bit after Roger uh, married Chaz, and they did become at least workmates, so to speak. And the edge was not what it was uh, in the beginning. And then... Um, Siskel died of a brain tumor in 1999. Uh, uh, Roger died of, uh, in 2013 of thyroid cancer. But after the Gene Siskel Center was up and running, there was a ceremony for, to put a, a plaque or something in the concrete honoring Roger uh, across the street in front of the movie theater. And I was at a ceremony that uh, was commemorating that. And I'm standing out there. Uh, on the sidewalk, as many people are watching this ceremony unfold, and Marlene Siskel, uh, Gene's widow, uh, says to me, "You know, if Gene were here, he'd be really glad that he made it to State Street first. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, this is obviously years and years later." You know, but even yes. in death, even even in death, uh, she figured that Gene would still be glad that she made it. Uh, he made it to State Street and first, and of course, they were obviously right across the street from one another. Matt, we got to wrap yeah. it up, but thank you so much for being with us. I can't. I look forward to reading the book. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.